0: welcome to the second episode we've got a lot of positive reception so far and we appreciate all your support although we've been struggling a bit to streamline how all this content goes and how to keep us all going look look
1: don't don't worry everyone he's not um he's not this talkative in the interviews i mean you'll see when you see the interviews um you know what i'm gonna do I'm going to put you in like a box in the upper, upper thirds here. What do you, what do you think about this?
0: How's that? What? No, I wanted to fight you on this, but I don't know. I guess this seems a little bit more comfortable. Yeah. I mean, I guess like, cause I
1: mean, you all see this in the interview. He just doesn't say anything. But um, you know, I guess the more comfortable you get in the interviews, I will make your box uh, a little, your your voyeur box, a little bigger. And um, right now, I think we can just kind of think of it as like your face being a conduit for the viewers.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyways, although although we recorded the interview a month ago, this week we have a very special guest. Oh,
1: yeah. Look, look, we're not, we're not doing this again. So I can't let you introduce the guests if you're not going to talk in the interviews and if you're not going to do any of that. So I, just be in your little box, play with your little Rubik's Cube that you should have figured out by now, but you haven't. It's very disappointing. Uh, but yeah, just stick to your little box. So this week, to, for this episode, we have really special guests. His name is Chef Harold Villarosa. He's a good friend of mine. He's a real titan in the community. He spends, look, this man spends all his energy empowering people around him and making sure that people get fed, especially those who wouldn't get fed otherwise. And um, like when the pandemic happened, Chef Harold just started, uh, you know, working even harder and harder and he was everywhere. You know, it was just so inspirational, uh, inspirational to anybody who's seen. And so, um, actually, after we recorded the interview, we found out that uh, chef. Oh, great! You got a side, cool. But you know, it's not connected on the on the other sides around it, so it doesn't really matter. Um, You know, you can figure that out. But after we. Just stay in your box, all right? Like you're trying to derail me. This is not happening. Okay, so after we recorded the interview, Chef Harold, he got a really important position, and now he's scheduled to be on air talent uh, for Bon Appetit, the uh, the magazine and uh, the channel or channel and network. And so you'll you'll definitely be seeing a lot more of him. Um, but you know, this interview is actually really good because we got into a lot of deep to- deep topics we covered um like appropriation and fine dining uh the repressive culinary production system or you know he he talked about it he wrote articles critiquing it and we linked those in the comments so you'll be able to see uh and we also talked about his personal history he was just like a, a kid from the philippines that moved to south bronx and you know um i'm just gonna stop wasting time because this is a long interview and finding's apparently getting upset in his little box up there, but you know you'll see him. Whatever. Man. All right. So, anyways, enjoy our interview with Chef Harold. Here we are. We have Chef Harold, one of my closest friends. I gave the intro earlier. How are you? Great, man. Just in a closet, you know, trying to trying to do the Zoom call real quick. Do you? Uh, can you disclose which kitchen you're in, or just some kitchen?
2: Nah, this is this is a this is a secret kitchen because I'm unemployed right now.
1: Oh. Right. <laughs> you and millions of people, millions of more people than there were a That's right. months ago. That's right. A couple months ago. So I know you, you recently wrote an article that, um, I know it's been getting a lot of like buzz, but because it's, it's critical of a lot of like traditions and uh, the whole way the industry is and, um, you know, like we all read it, and we, we've we've we're gonna link it here for people to read it. But um, yeah, you know, can you can you talk? Can you introduce the concept for us?
2: Yeah, so um, you know, I've been in the industry for almost 18 years, and I've worked in one Michelin star to a mom and pop restaurant to the number one restaurant in the world. So I have, I believe, I have the chops to talk about what's really happening in our industry, you know? And, and the article really was just a synopsis of my career of what I've went through. And it was just a synopsis of, of an ideal that I've been working on for the last five years. Five years ago, I, I realized that, you know, the industry is going to collapse, the bubbles about to pop soon. And we needed to kind of, you know, start you know having the conversation about making changes. And, you know, I'm, I'm a culprit of it too. I, I've I've, I've used the system to the Escoffier system, which is a brigade system right. that was created by a French guy, a French chef that was in the military. And he took that kind of hierarchical uh, concept and brought it into the kitchen, which also you know created uh, organization, which you really need in a, in, a, in a chaotic space like a kitchen. But what happened was uh, throughout the years, it became a, a, a space or a system that was used for abuse, uh, right. mental abuse, drug abuse to, uh, you know, all types of abuse, right? Um, cultural abuse, all type of shit, right? And what happened was, I, I realized five years ago that, you know, we need to make a change. And the first change that we need to make is in the system. You know, yeah. I mean, the, the system, uh, just like the government, needs to be able to be able to pivot and, and make sure that they have a chance to uh, you know, uh, elevate from what, they, what, from what it is now. And I think we're in that, in that point in our, in our country where from Black Lives Matter to what's happening with the election and what's happening with our president and what's happening with our society, you know, we're in that precipice of our time where there's a lot of friction, you know, either it's going to go up in flames or we're going to create uh, the conversation that needs to be started uh, between, you know, all types of people. So I had to write an article about kind of my experience. I wrote the article about what's in, happening in the industry. And then I gave a little snippet of what I think should be the new model for the industry. And I'm writing another article afterwards to follow up because right. you know, this, this article was too big. I wrote, I wrote this article and it was too big. It was over 3,000 words and the, the editor told me I had to cut it down. So we right. split it into three articles. So I have three articles dropping uh, consecutively talking about, you know, the changes that needs to be done in the industry and, and how we can do the changes. So I'll be getting a lot of white heat from it. You know, literally white people are the <laughs> only ones that are saying something and everybody else are supporting it. And, and, and it's just a, it was just a great, crazy last couple of days. I mean, the editor was saying that, you know, even the sponsors of the site had to say something because it reached all the way to the top. And so, you know, we had to, you know, now it's just really just having a conversation. And I think as a disruptor, it created a ripple in the industry. And I'm really was just looking out for my chef friends and people that are all unemployed right now, you know, like nobody's right. really talking about what's next. You know, we're not opening dining rooms. We're not doing anything. Nothing's happening in the restaurant business, you know, so we're in a really bad shape. That.
1: If I can uh, provide a little context here, so we're gonna link we're gonna link your article, but um, so I met Chef Harold uh, maybe about a year ago when he was uh, head chef at this comedy restaurant, comedy club and restaurant, and Mm -hmm. uh, food you know food's incredible obviously, but the thing about going in and kind of observing Chef Harold because the way the way I work and whatever I do in my spaces, I just kind of go into a lot of different situations and observe is, um, you know, it felt very homely. I felt like I was hanging out with my cousin that was just like really good at cooking and like you're always feeding me. And so there's definitely that homely atmosphere. And so it's not, it's not a leap to, to see what you're saying, it's just like a logical extension of empathy. So I was looking up this system, Vani and I were doing the research on the Escafier system. Right now it's broken down, you know, top chef, which is, you know, your position yeah. because of your long career and everything, which is why the message coming from you is way more potent than it may be from anyone else. But so there's the top chef, you work with the manager of the restaurant, you work with the owners of the restaurant to come up with the ideas and the dishes, and just kind of like generally manage and make sure there's quality control and consistency, yeah. right? Then there's the station managers. Then it, it, please tell me if I'm getting all this wrong because I probably mm-hmm. am getting it wrong. Then there's the saccier, which I guess is just like. Um, if you think of it, yeah, but it's like the 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 foundation uh, the quality control of the foundation for mm-hmm. the dishes. I'm ge- okay. So so quality control for the foundation of the dishes. Then there is the. Um, I, I guess yeah, it goes down and goes down. But cooks are kind of like it says that they're independent contractors in a way. They're like more like free agents.
2: Yeah. So cooks are you know cooks are interchangeable. You know it's it's right. it's, um, it's a position that's kind of like the pawn on the chessboard, right? Mm-hmm. They can go either or. You know, once a, a cook reaches the other side of the chessboard, they can become a chef once they go through all those, you know, all the wars and all the battles. Right. And there's managers on top of those guys, right. in Every level. And there's managers on top of managers. And, you know, essentially the cooks are the backbone and the dishwashers are the backbone of the restaurants Right. and the chefs are the head chefs are just basically the generals where they, you know, maintain order they make sure stuff is always there for people to, to work with and they're like the strategists of the, of the space. So it's, uh, it's like I said, it's a, it's a parallel to the military, uh, right. the Military structure, you know, sergeants are like, you know, executive sous chefs, you know, captains are, you know, chef de cuisines and stuff like that. So it's, it, it's, parallel to it. And I think, you know, if you really look at the military system that we have in America, all the hazing, all people dying in the military, all the people going crazy with mental abuse. It's its, it's all parallel, man.
1: So the, 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 the cooks and dishwashers are the jarheads.
2: That's right. That's right. Yeah.
1: And I was so, a jarhead
2: too, man, for a long time.
1: Man, you must, yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, how could you, so that actually brings me to this. So. There are all these stories of social mobility through the industry, right? You were the jarhead. You came from the Philippines when you were nine years old. Yeah. South Bronx, yeah. basically dropped into a whole new environment. You learn the culture, everything. You become, you give back, you create food, right? Food's very tied to the culture, but then you have to get into the system. So you have to be a jarhead and your draw to the system is the concept of upward mobility, mm-hmm. right? I'm assuming that's a, so all those endless nights that everyone talked that you're talking about in the article where it's like, you know, it takes a f-ed up toll on your body, you're mm-hmm. drinking soda out of the bar gun, all of that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. The thing that's driving you is a thought of getting where you are now, or even beyond where you are now. Yeah, You know it because you've seen examples mm-hmm. and you've seen a path, so what i want to know is the way the system is set up now it seems like there is the possibility for people at the top like the chefs people in your position restaurant owners or bar owners to dangle or create even a delusion of upward mobility for the people that are working to keep them you know keep them working to keep them outputting to keep the dishwasher Working, you know, sixteen-hour days, seven days a week.
2: Yeah, like I said, man, I was a culprit of it. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna hide from it. You know what I'm saying? I don't want to get, Ellen DeGeneres in ten years from now. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm telling it right now on record. Yeah. I was a culprit of it. You know what I'm saying? You're always keeping was, it real. You know, yeah. You know, I, you know people. You know, if you interview people from the work with me ten years ago, they would tell you I was a fucking, I was a monster. You know what I'm saying? Like a, a pure monster. You know what I'm saying? Like, not only did I sleep, breathe, the restaurant. I I worked seven days for two years straight. I opened four restaurants by myself. Like, I ran 75-man teams. Like, you know, I'm I'm the epitome of a guy that drank Mm -hmm. juice. You know what I'm saying? And I want to make it clear that that was wrong. I was super wrong. And the only reason why I was that way is because the people before me taught me that way. That's how they showed me how to run kitchens. And so when I learned, my my main lesson was when I had eight people walk out on me because I was so hard on them. They walked out on me in the middle of brunch and I had to work brunch by myself with my sous chefs. And it was crazy. And they just walked out. Put their clothes on and walk the fuck out. They said they're not with me. And that made me realize that, damn, I'm a soul. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, that's when I started the process of kind of releasing those demons within myself and revamping kind of my narrative and talking about empathy, talking about compassion, because the article resonates with every chef. Yeah. every chef that's saying something right now they they're, they're literally talking about themselves because they think they're doing the right things but they're really not doing the right things you know and so um, yeah it, 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 it really it really ruined a lot of people you know a lot of a lot of great chefs who were in the industry they all left because they were burnt out
1: or had drug abuse problems you know or mental health problems. Yeah, I mean you mentioned Anthony Bourdain, um, from the outside, the perfect life. And look. Um, but what would happen, you know? He's the
2: he's the, you know, he's the guy that he's the guy that got ninety percent of the cooks right now into cooking, you know what I'm saying? They they see that as the, the hierarchy. They see his position as the top level for them to reach if they go down that path that he went down on. And you know that was the wrong path for him. He you know, he really went down a really terrible path. So it's 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 a it's a crazy business, man. And you know there's 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 probably you know a hundred million people working in the industry just in the back of the house, all over the world. Yeah. You know, right? I mean? Talking about talking about cooks, we're talking about restaurants, we're talking about hotels, and each one of them are going through the same thing that I've went through. You know, so
1: yeah. And there's always there's always a draw of work like this where it's like it's you you can get in a cycle where it's like you've got that thought of okay there's going to be upward social mobility for me or upward mobility in career and possibly upward social mobility or this is a holdover until you know i get what i was educated in or whatever and and so having a whole industry that thrives and survives off of that labor alone and then having covid happened with the quarantine and people are not being able to go to work and you're realizing that uh, all of these structures are crumbling i know that um you know we had this conversation about other like big big chefs millionaires you know that that do so many so many things they can't really get relevance anymore because no. what the lifestyle became the lifestyle became about a brand building thing as opposed to it really being about the food and the skill and what the admiration was there for in the first place.
2: Yeah I mean people forgot about what the craft is really all about right? Right. It's really about making people happy and you can toil in that kind of lifestyle creating food you know having this great experience in a restaurant but at the end of the day it's one of the oldest crafts in the world just like carpeting, uh, carpeting or you know, uh, 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 being a mechanic. It's, it's, it's knowledge that's being passed down from generation to generation. People put it in a book just to standardize it, but a f- book, you have to go and work in a kitchen and stand by somebody and go through, you know, a thousand people service or, you know, 600-person brunch to really, like, understand what that, what that life's about. You know what I'm saying? So I think, you know, as a craft... And as most things, you know, the digital age is here now. The future is here now. Yeah. And it's one of the last crafts that don't really use that kind of, um, those kind of uh, tools as an advantage, you know. It's, it's, it's still stuck in this archaic way of, of learning, of teaching, and, and all these kind of things. And really it's about the chefs that are on top. You know, they're the ones that's keeping all these traditions alive you know, giving these fucking grandioso stories of how they were, um, uh, how they were uh, apprentices for a dollar a day at a French restaurant in 70, 1977 type shit. Well, they're that's, taking that's,
1: advantage of the people that are currently living that lifestyle. Yeah, you know, I was getting
2: paid, I mean, one of those chefs, I was getting paid ten fifty an hour in 2015 and working 88 hours a week. Like, what the is that? Crazy you know what I'm saying? So, at the end of the day, it really just is really about uh, the consciousness of the people that are up top, and I think yeah. that's the problem. You know, the people up top are the only ones getting invited to the table to talk about these issues. You know what I mean? People like myself, or people that are in the mm-hmm. rut of it, never gets asked to be part of the conversation because they feel like our name or our skin color doesn't dictate what the happens in the industry. But the up part is. We're the ones that's running these restaurants. We're the ones opening up these goddamn restaurants at six in the morning. And we're the ones that's washing dishes when the dishwasher walks out. So at the end of the day, these white big name chefs that's been, you know, chasing clout and got to where they were at, they'll Mm -hmm. never come back to to this area right here. Because this area right here is hard work. You know what I'm saying? And so I think... You know, especially what happened a few months ago, when they went to go visit Donald Trump, there was not one single colored person at that table.
1: What, uh, you know, who who what what, uh, what visit was this?
2: This is the restaurant. Save the restaurant visit. It okay. was like it was like ten tours from all over the country went to go sit with Trump and talk about how to save the restaurants, and not one colored person was at that table. Not one not one and there's multiple restaurant owners all over the country that are black purple orange you know what i'm saying
1: right and and people. i bet uh, how many of the restaurants that were represented actually served a lot of ethnic food though
2: yeah you know <laughs> most most of the people that were there was just that one color type you yeah. know what I'm saying so it, it it really like i said I man it's a it's a it's a real parallel the food industry is a real parallel to society. You know what I'm saying? It really shows what's happening in our society and what's really happening uh, in the underbellies of it, you know? Because you can't lie with food, man. It's either good or bad. That's the only two things. There's no gray area. There's no politics between all that. It's either s*** or is it good. And if it's good, be coming back. If it's s***, you're not going to see me again. So, uh, it, okay. it, you know... It also, you know, creates accountability. You know what I'm saying? And so mm-hmm. I just, I, I just feel like there needs to be an evolution of, of what's happening in, in the, the restaurant business. And once we start doing it in the restaurant business, the rest
1: of the country is going to follow suit. You know? Yeah. yeah. Um. So, so Fani, yeah, actually, I was about to set this up. So Fani uh, was thinking about we were looking at the kitchen system, the Escafier system, and he's been doing a lot of uh, work and research on in Sanskrit and he was thinking about the caste system and how it kind of relates to that, you know, cause we've been, cause we use this platform to talk about colonialism and things like that or whatever we can contextualize or come up with, so. Um,
0: I mean, it might be a reach, but I, I think there's a very similar parallel to what you know, chef mentioned with the your system and the caste system, how you have a certain group of people at the top who are making all the decisions for the entire organization mm-hmm. and how it gets filtered down based on the color of your skin and also other abilities, like maybe the amount of knowledge you're even able to get to the point of obtaining because, you know, like, I don't know how it exactly works in the kitchen system, but how easy is it, Chef, for a dishwasher per se to move up in the organization system? It just depends on the the head
2: person, you know what I'm saying? Like, if the chef sees the dishwasher is organized and, and works really well, he could be he could be a jar head. He could be a line cook tomorrow, you know what I'm saying? And he'll wallow in that line cook position for like a couple of years, and he or she can move up to a sous chef position, can wallow in that for like two or three years, and then can move up to a chef de cuisine position, can wallow in that for two or three years, and then become a head chef, but that's just somebody that's gung-ho about being a chef and then gung-ho about the lifestyle, you know, like, you know, doing all of it, you know, coming in early, leaving late, working seven days, like all of it. That's the only way you can get to that point, but from a dishwasher to a, to a head chef, 15 years, bro. Easily. But
0: Most people aren't just pigeonholed into one kind of thing that they're doing. There's no, there's no, there's no, (laughs) There's no
2: rating system of like, this person is doing good, here's a raise, or there's no, you know, some corporate places probably have that, but in mom and pop restaurants or regular restaurants, there's no like sheet of paper where, oh, the dishwasher is doing great today, or the dishwasher has a three month review. There's none of that. I try to create that with my, you know, with my restaurants, and the owners always shut it down because they knew that there's an accountability system, they have to pay more. You feel me? So my idea was every three months, we do a review together. We sit down, we talk about it, and then you get a raise. You get a raise or you don't get a raise. That's always been my thing. And I've always, know. so in my contracts, I've always had to write that in for my contract that I'm going to create that system because they the, the own restaurant owners never want to do that because It's going to cost them more money for labor down the line if people get paid more,
1: you know? And it's just cheaper to keep telling them that they'll advance later on. and It's a f***ing carrot dangling situation. You know what I'm saying? I
2: know one restaurateur, he was so busy that he would, oh, you, you want to raise? You're five. Next one. Like, boom. Right into, and then we have all these immigrants lined up, just boom, 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 boom. One time, we had 15 guys leave at the same time you 15 guys the next
1: day type you know what I'm saying like it was crazy he, crazy what okay so here's like a concept we've been kind of playing with and thinking about it's like okay the, the immigrants that work in these kitchens and work for these chefs you know oftentimes they have like all of us they have cultural backgrounds they have food that they've eaten that they've prepared with their parents or uncles or cousins or whatever growing up they know how certain vegetables are chopped and cooked and worked seasoned all of that stuff they develop taste all of that so all of that cultural knowledge that can't necessarily be taught in culinary school they are bringing or you know i'm just assuming this but they're bringing to these environments and the people that get to profit off of them are these restaurant managers and the chefs that basically can, you know, make these cuisines that they rebrand, that are fusions of different cultures or whatever. And, you know, the one part that they need to prep for that dish, they got the guy in the back that they're paying $2, $2.50 an hour or whatever to, to to do what he's been doing for decades as a kid and growing up. Well, I mean, you know, some, some 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 chefs that are good
2: give the recognition to that person, right? Yeah. They bring them out to to the to the meetings with the staff, We're like, look, Alfredo, he this is his recipe, like he 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 or she, if it's a good chef, he or she's gonna do that, right? Yeah. Or put their name on the menu, or give them profits off of whatever that thing is sold. That's being a good chef, right? But you know the 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 restaurant industry has this time of the day called family meal, right? Yeah. And family meals, when everybody sits down and eats, and what usually happens is, you give protein and, and stuff to the med- to, to whoever is working there, and they're gonna make the food that they eat at their house because it's their time for family meal. You know, it's their time to eat, so they're not gonna eat American or whatever type food that's being served in the restaurant because they're tasting that all night during service. They'd rather make what they have at home, right? So they make these great dishes at home. And then the chef eats it and he goes, he or she goes, this is great. Let's put this on the menu. And then sometimes people take advantage of that. And then sometimes the chef can flip it and take what he learned there. Then open another restaurant with that ethnic cuisines umbrella. And then he or she travels and does all this research Brings all those knowledge back and then creates that restaurant. And then one guy becomes the restaurant, you know, the, the, the Mexican
1: connoisseur, even though he's a white guy that lives in Chicago. So, just like in colonialism, <laughs> there's ample opportunities to benefit off of other people's cultural labor. Ample. And ample, so,
2: bro. Ample, ample. But you got to do the right things, man. You got to do the right yeah. thing. If something is going to get put on the menu because of that person, you gotta give them the props. And I've always been that type of guy too, especially in my kitchens is whoever makes the dish, I'm not gonna be like, I made it, I'm not gonna f- for what? I don't want another f- stress on my life that I gotta make this f- dish a certain way. I'm like, nah, this motherfucker made it, like, come here. You explain it to these guys and tell them, tell them how you made it. You know what I'm saying? Like, For me, yeah. I've, I've taken myself out of that thing, but most chefs have egos. Because you know some of them, you know, were like the nerds of the schools before they became chefs, or like you know the introverts, and you know they just yeah. using the brigade system to like bully people because they were getting bullied, you know, mm-hmm. like that. It's all mental stuff, man. But the real people that are in the craft, for the craft, know what the fuck is up. You know what I'm saying? Like I only with real chefs, real cooks. You know what I'm saying? Like I don't, I don't mess right. with I don't mess with fake people, you know? So my circle of culinarians have always been real motherfuckers, you know what I'm saying? And so I think people just forgot what this whole thing was about, you know what I'm saying? It's about community, it's about culture and finding yourself through food, you know what I'm saying? Like I'm doing Filipino food now and um, I've never done Filipino food, but I'm doing it to kind of uh, find out who I am as a, as a, as a Filipino-American in this country. And I'm using that as a, as a source for me to, to research, to travel, talk to people, to experience things. That doesn't mean I'm going to cook that food. You know what I'm saying? That doesn't mean that that's going to be like my cuisine. I'm just doing it to find who I am. You know what I'm saying? And to really understand where I came from and being able to tell that story when I, you know, cook a dish or do a party. And I think That's the way it should be done, you know? A chef that wants to cook Thai food that's white should talk about it like that. This is my food journey to find who I am. And Thai food helped me get there to that point because it resonated to me at a certain time, it's resonated to me, the flavors resonated to me, the people resonated to me. But the problem is, you know, the the, the thing that happened in Dallas, right? This this white chef, this white chef got, you know, told you're spelling banh mi wrong because you have a Vietnamese restaurant. I'm a Vietnamese person. I'm telling you you spelled banh mi wrong. And then you're gonna go off on me, call me a bunch of names and saying that I don't know (laughs) shit about Vietnamese food, even though I'm Vietnam and I'm a chef and you're (laughs) shitting on me because I'm a brand new chef. So, and then the Asian passive, you know, aggressive Asians, they, they uh, they, they didn't they didn't they didn't say, shit, you know? They didn't say, they didn't, you know? they just, he just, you know, he just, um, you know, they just, you know, quit, stay quiet and, and 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 nobody said nothing, and, and 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 the chef got so much heat from other Asian chefs all over the country that this is in hiding. He hasn't been in his restaurant wow. in in like months because we're all. I'm one of the guys. So if this comes on and that mother is watching. This is the guy that's been writing you in your DMs, mother That's me, that's <laughs> me, this is my face, all right? So, that mother asking who, who's who been writing in his DMs? That's me, bro, all right? That's me, it's me telling you, come see me. I'm gonna come see you. Talk all that crazy to Asians, man. Acting like you tough the fuck out there. That's yeah. it, sorry.
1: No, no, that's good. That's good. I mean, because this, you know, this is, this gives us a lot to think about, especially with appropriation and how, you know, people benefit from that kind of thing. I was reading something about how, you know, the way we perceive veganism and think about veganism, it's such a white-driven industry. And that, like, made me think about what you were saying just now, you know, how these chefs profit and the, the Asian dudes, the Vietnamese dude speaking up. Uh, and, and being shut down is because like we kind of seed our cultural space I, I feel like a lot of times we like kind of concede our cultural space so that you know other people can become critics and judges in that space and they develop this kind of position of authority just like how funny it has been I don't want to say but Okay, people that study Sanskrit at Ivy League colleges, you know, the professors only value the opinions of people that are very studied and learned in Sanskrit at Ivy League colleges and Oxford colleges, which are English and American, which kind of means like they're kind of like, the, they have the taint of colonialism. They're literally colonial institutions, whereas they would discount the opinion of people in India that are trying to speak Sanskrit or have these whatever relics. You know, same thing with like discounting the people who are literally of the culture, telling you how to spell bond me and you you won't listen to the person because he doesn't have the credentials in this system that you're so dependent on and why other people are protecting the white dude who feeling offended because they're so dependent on the thought of social mobility or upward mobility within that system. <laughs> You know, it's like why it's do you it? Have- it's crazy, man. And you what know, the, the the
2: veganism too is, is crazy. Is um, the Jama the Caribbean countries, Jamaicans, you know, the Aitai, the I-tai, uh, uh, like um, principles and the learnings and all that, you know, that's that's from the land, right? But that that's yeah. that's people's understanding, that's people's lifestyle, you know what I'm saying? And you know, white people or you know, whoever gets gets uh introduction to it. And they think it's cool, and then they, you know, they, they appropriate it. But I think, you know, the the, the real issue is, you know, how far can you, how far can you have this conversation, you know? Because I feel like it gets super negative at times, right? It gets super negative, and people just want to, you know, lash out at each other and all type of stuff. You know what I mean? Like, cultural appropriation is is hard, man. Because at yeah. the end of the day, you know. Now, especially now, there's been generations of motherfuckers that's lived in a place that they feel like it's their home. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. They feel like they're from here or they're from there, but they don't even realize their own personal history of where they came from. And they don't want to look at their own personal history of where they came from because they know all the trauma that comes with that. So they become negative and they start thinking this is their space. This is, this is what they believe in and this is what they have. And then they take that and this blind, just blindly put the blinders on, forget about everything else and all the bigger picture and all the things that happened. And now I think, you know, and now we're in a position where the, those type of people are really lost now. They're, they're so lost at who they are. I've watched a video that came up on WorldStar, was it was yesterday, this white guy in Britain was talking crazy to three black kids on the train talking about they were pets, that they don't belong in this country. Like all types of like, cra- and these kids are just saying, look, stop being racist. Like we were born here, that means we're Brits. Like like chill, they're like, you're not from here talking all this crazy shit. So when the kids are walking out, this guy is still in their face, and one kid just turned around and punched him right in the face and knocked his ass Good. out. Cold, Good. cold, just cold. Cold, talking about cold, so cold. They had to stop the train, call the police, get the ambulance in because he was out. Like, he was gone. And so, you know, that's what I think is a, a, a microcosm of what's going to happen if people keep fucking doing this shit, man. Yeah. They need to know their own personal history. They need to know what the fuck is happening. And they need to be able to communicate their feelings a lot more than resorting to negative uh negative connotations or negative language or negative uh uh, 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 you know words whatever and the crazy part is when i posted that article you know some people all they understood was the blm part that's all they understood was the blm part and i said my man the blm part was only four words Mm -hmm. i only said just like the blm movement that's all i said but they, that's all they took and then they went off and just said some other racial stuff. And I said, look, I'm just a host. I'm just here to open the conversation. I'm here to see what both sides are. And mm-hmm. they got shut down because the people that are supporting the Black Lives Matters are all intellectual. So they have all these like stories and kind of, you know, uh, know how on what what has happened in this country. And what has created this country, you know? What, what what backs have been written to create this country? And and it was yeah. just a fascinating back and forth the last few days off of the article because a lot of people that were really angry about it are the ones that are really
1: showing who they are, you know? Like yeah. those... quarantine's a great revealer. Yeah. I mean they crucified uh, they crucified Obama when he said you didn't build that alone you know, which is just like literally anybody that builds anything understands that they don't build that thing alone. Yeah. We're too interconnected. We're too interconnected in the world for anything to be done alone. Like literally I'm wearing this shirt. Who do you think threaded it together? Not me, you know, but, um, you know, that, that, that makes me think about like the line between appropriation and appreciation. And so you know, we're trying to get to, you're trying to get to a new paradigm in the chef world, in the fine dining world, where we get to more of an appreciation. But, you know, we still have this roadblock where it's just like, okay, well, you guys can't really talk about your own culture. We need a white guy who studied it to be more palatable to us, you know? Yeah. and so it's, it's, so it's like, when I think about this, I think about things like yoga. It's like, I'm not into like self enrichment or whatever yet. You know, I'm in my thirties and I'll get there. I'm getting there soon. But like, if I wanted to get into yoga, I honestly don't know where I could find like an Indian teacher that has like done yoga. I could find like a white girl that went to India for a summer and that studied with some guy, you know, but in the, and then she's got like a bunch of studios. I can find that anywhere, but it, it I, I don't know how I would feel. Yeah. Yeah, man. It's, 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 um,
2: you're, you're, you're right about the, the line between appreciation and appropriation. And I think that's where there needs to be, like, you know, a company, like a, a company, right? People's jobs have job descriptions, right? There's like, mm-hmm. this is what you're supposed to be doing at this job. I just feel like when we start talking about that, there needs to be a description of it. People need to have that as part of their communication to understand what's what, what's the difference, and how they can move differently. You know what I'm saying? And yoga (laughs) is crazy, because I didn't even think about it. That is appropriating Uh, 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 a martial art that's been around for so long, that's been uh, documented, started from uh, India, and, 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 it's, and, it's, and it's crazy how many yoga studios are run by white people. And it's, 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 it's amazing you said that, too, because if you dial, uh, if you write yoga on, on Google, like one place I know on Union Square was like a traditionalist. You know, these guys were like the head guys, like an Indian guy. He studied in so many places and all these type of things. And his classes are always booked. They're always booked because all the best, he does all the best ones. He does, You know, all these kind of things. So it just makes you wonder, you know what I'm saying? Like, I think, I think we're just, I think now at this time, we're just uber sen- sensitive on, mm-hmm. on everything. You know what I'm saying? We are just ready to lash or ready to cancel somebody because they did something that didn't make sense. You know, like the Barcada restaurant in DC, right? These guys didn't even know what barcada meant. They looked it up. They thought, you know, that was the that was the definition. Then the whole DMV Filipino community just came out and said, that shit. how are you going to have a restaurant called barcada and have Spanish wines in your list? And the Spaniards colonized the Philippines for almost 300 years. And so there was this whole thing, and then now they're changing their name. They're reaching out to the DMV, especially all of the Filipinos. They're like having a conversation now, but they didn't need to take it all the way to like open a restaurant and have paying customers go in for them to realize what happened, you know. And I think that's the issue with restaurants too. Now there's no social impact initiative attached yeah. to the restaurants, you know. You know when the COVID thing happened, and Black Lives Matter happened, restaurants and brands were running around trying to find a social impact thing to latch their names to. To make sure that they don't get canceled, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And when I opened that restaurant in Union Square, I had to put it as my contract that I need to work with the kids and mentor them with my social impact work. That was part of my contract. I had to put that in there because if I didn't put it in there, it would have never gotten done. Yeah, and they know already. I don't play that. Shit. First, you pay your money, and then second, you better sign that contract because I don't play that. Shit. And
0: that's so,
2: right. and so that's what happened. You know, what I'm saying I had to force that and now everybody's trying to have a social impact. Everybody's trying to save the world, but are they really doing it for saving the world purposes or
1: are they doing it because they don't want to get canceled or chasing cloud, right? I mean, they wouldn't have to do any of that if literally they thought about the message that they're doing or run it by, which kind of brings me back to the thing about, it's it's like, why is it, if you're ever like sounding the alarm, and I know you've experienced this and I know a lot of the people that I guess we're kind of um, going for as our target audience with this, like first generation and immigrant uh, people that grew up here and have, you know, integrated in culture and have to have have gone through that. But like thinking about the uh, social impact of what you're doing and how that gets commodified out you know, and you're just stripped of any, like, you, you can't afford to be philanthropic if you need to be in this system,
2: you know, and to be philanthropic,
1: Hmm? there's no space for it, there's no space for it, right, it's extraneous energy, it's going to cut into the bottom line of whoever is managing you or whatever, and trying to exert control over your discretion, yet they're paying you for your discretion, because you have, you you're an artist and have a craft that is an art. Um, yeah. So when, now
2: so now so now restaurants are lost. Yeah. Are they going to are they going to make money? Are they going to do covid? Are they going to be a social impact space? <laughs> they don't have no idea, you know. They they don't have the understanding of what in, what delta needs to happen to make the change in the neighborhood. So, and I've spoken I've spoken about it before too at TED I've spoken about it at the MAD Food Symposium. I've had programs with the U.S. Embassy about it. It's really about three things, a restaurant, a school, and a garden. Once you teach somebody how to grow something, that will change their whole mindset about life. You know what I'm saying? Not only will they understand the value of that product, but they will also understand the value of hard work. And then once you have that ecosystem built with the school and the restaurant, not only can you employ and teach them how to work and give them a job and give them a skill set they can have for the rest of their life, you're teaching them life lessons while they're working at the restaurant. So this model, I've literally done in five countries. And the oh. only country that it doesn't work in is this country. <laughs> you know? Because this country is a bunch of people that just want to one-up each other and want to get rid of the people that are smart, and get rid of people that are trying to make change, and it doesn't make sense. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, Brazil to f-ing Belgium to Copenhagen, these things work. Not only because it's a you know it's a more linear countries and they're more socialistic in that sense, but why are we not learning from them? Why are yeah. we as a country not pivoting? China took 20 years to become a world power. 20. Years and what happened? Now we owe them motherfuckers money. That's how that's how serious they got it, right? Yeah. China moved so fast that the US owed China money. That's how fast China moved, you know? And we didn't pay attention to it, we didn't learn from it. We were just egotistical. Thought we were better than everybody else. And look at us now. We're still in COVID and the whole eastern side of the world is chilling. I got a man in Taiwan right now. They have a system. When you fly in, 14 days quarantine, after 14 days, a cop comes, checks your thing, you get a test, you're good, you're set.
1: Damn, uh, just common sense. We have built like a whole culture and economy on telling ourselves we're better than everyone else. We are, we're literally a country of the Kruger Dunning effect. Uh, we'll link that in the bottom. But, um, all,
2: you know, all, all it comes down to, I think, with this generation and this country and the type of people that we're dealing with, this conversation. Mm-hmm. There needs to be a sit down, many sit downs amongst communities to talk about what changes need to happen to make things work. Why are people getting lynched still in Indiana? Why did that one black guy almost get lynched
1: in 2020? There who were six the people fuck? that were lynched, and they, the police departments ruled them as suicides. Why are people getting
2: lynched? What the fuck? Who has, who has that much rope? Like, why is that happening? Like, it's like, it doesn't make sense to me, man. Like, we are so ass backwards. Nobody's paying attention to Europe. Nobody's paying attention to how they maneuvered. They're older than us. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they don't, we don't have that mindset. They're older than us. We should learn from their mistakes. We should learn from what happened. Germany, what, 100 uh, was it 60 years ago? Apologized for the Nazis. Bent the knee and apologized for what happened and what they did to the Jewish people. And if, if if a country can do that, we have to have the opportunity to say sorry to the slaves, to the people that generationally have been oppressed for the last 400 years. Mm -hmm. and give them the money back that's it you have free labor for 400 years you got enough stashed away to pay people back that four trillion dollars of
1: debt that's not real that's not real it's like a dent and it's like a it's like a drop in the military budget
2: that's not real bro
1: how we had a billion
2: dollar budget in the military and the billion dollar budget was just for air conditioners bro get the out of it just for air conditioners get the out of it so
1: that's it. I mean, that kind of brings me back that brings me back to this okay, overall, overall arching concept thought of like, I feel like so many problems in this country would be solved if every person that's not white had a one-to-one had a white guy literally saying the exact same thing they're saying so that it would get taken seriously. It's true. It's true, bro. You know, I, I think
2: and, you know, like I said, man, I'm, do- I'm trying to do my part to make a change in the restaurant industry. Yeah. And once the restaurant industry gets to a point where we're accepting the abuse, we're accepting what happened, we talk about the abuse, we get mental health uh, help, we get, you know, insurance, all the Mexicans that come in or the Ecuadorians, they get sponsored to get visas to live and work in this country. Yeah. And, and, you know, like all those things, once all those things happen, It'll, it'll trickle back up to wherever the overarching issues are and I think that's when you know we can really have a sense of utopia uh, or or kind of peace that we're looking for you know so it might not be our generation it might be the not the next one but definitely you know planting the seed now with the Black Lives Matter movement with the Latinx community with the with the Filipino community for black lives and all these type of things that are happening and all these groups that are forming together this Voltron to have a conversation. I think, you know, that's really a, a step forward from what it was 20 years ago, where the generation after the civil rights movement just dropped the f-ing ball and yeah. decided, decided to lay low and punch a nine to five instead of standing up for what's right and thinking about their kids and thinking about the
1: generation after that instead of thinking about themselves. Yeah, I mean they had their fireside chats and they're told to drive cars and stuff and go to parks and you know yeah. you 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 spend a generation cultivating, living a lifestyle that now our generation is kind of like held hostage to people with lifestyle brands. And, you know, I, I guess if we can figure out an economy around everybody trying to get off on their lifestyle brand. You know, I mean, you know, you know what space I work in, where it's just like I do a lot of production work for other people's brands and stuff, and and it's like um, navigating with ego is always a big thing because every, because some people think that they are doing everything when they don't do everything. Because it feeds into their narrative that they have to tell themselves, and I know we were talking about this over this interview, but like, obviously, you know, chefs and restaurant managers and owners and people like that in those positions are so susceptible to that kind of um, to that kind of mentality.
2: Well, that's what they're all aiming for, you know. They want that lifestyle brand. They want that, you know. They want all the the stuff that comes with it. You know, they want to eat for free at their own restaurants. They want to drink for free at their own restaurants. And I think that's really where, you know, the, the fundamental issues is that, you know, like, what does it look like if you're an owner that cares about your people, you know? What does it look like if you're an owner that really is about what you're talking about? Prime example mm-hmm. is Danny Meyer, right? Danny Meyer is a prime example, right? And during covid he let go of 20,000 employees, right? 20,000 employees all across his brand. He had, wow. when, when Shake Shack got the IPO uh, four years ago, in one hour he made 400 million, right? You couldn't pay 20,000 people three months worth of whatever you can give them so they can stay on the books and you know receive their insurance, the, all this kind of stuff. You had to let all of them go and now, now after 10 years of you, oh no, six years of you not, you know, no tipping rules, raising the prices in the menu, this whole f- you go right back to tipping. You say, I'm going back to tipping because I think the system did not work. You know, like, what does that really say about you as a restaurant owner after all the f- that you f- talked about in your books and all yeah. your stuff? You know what I'm saying? It's just some hypocrite shit, bro. If you're really a person that's going to give up, just give himself to the craft, give himself to the restaurant business, you should give your dollars too. Because you can just say all that shit, but the reason why you got there to the top in your little penthouse apartment on 21st Street is because of all those people that you let go. Mm -hmm. No notice. You know, I have all my friends work there. No notice. Two days' notice, and how do you think, while well, everybody's living paycheck to paycheck already,
1: in a how pandemic,
2: how do you think they're gonna, think they're gonna f- feed their families after you let them go? You know what I'm saying? So, it, 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 it's uh, like I said, man, I think the world, society in America is a parallel to the restaurant industry. And once we fix the restaurant industry, once we find the model that works in the restaurant industry, that'll really translate right into society. And, and what is happening in our government, culturally. You know, we're a restaurant, we're a restaurant country, bro. That's what we do, you know? People make yeah. their
1: livings off restaurants. Uh, it's like 70% of our labor force, I think, is the service industry or some, something like that. You know, so, you know, just imagine,
2: be just imagine. So, you know, I think the conversation really comes down to who really wants to, to, to make the change, who wants to communicate about the change, and i just wanted to write that article and disrupt the the people's lives for a little bit because people thought that it was you know you know berries and
1: honey and <laughs> you did disrupt i did see a lot of those comments yeah, I mean, <laughs> so much
0: hate hmm? that article, it's interesting because i think we're shifting into a culture of collaboration and not so much just competition and it's a very interesting point that Chef made with the restaurant industry being parallel to society and the way it's being structured and how it is now. And just in the article itself, I was very fascinated by your own ideas of how you think you can improve upon that.
2: Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm a big, I'm a big guy about tech. You know, I, I pay attention to the structures of companies. I pay attention to models, and I pay attention to uh, uh, how. How leaders talk to their people, you know. One of my favorite uh, leaders is uh, Steve Weiner, who who was the CEO of LinkedIn for ten years. You know, uh, he started LinkedIn about two thousand eleven. When he walked into it, there were three hundred employees, and when he left, there were thirty thousand, and they they grew they grew to like two hundred eighty million users type of like you know. And and the one thing he really spoke about his top ten list the one thing was always about compassion and empathy and the difference between that two, you know, and how you run your companies that way and how you can uh, uh, elevate uh, the companies through them uh, creating that kind of culture. And that's what it really comes down to. So, you know, it, you know, uh, this culture that America is in right now has been a culture that has been passed down from slave owners to railroad owners to, to, to the Rockefellers, all these... <laughs> guys that didn't really care about people and I think our generation uh, grew up in the early 2000s and saw you know we saw the evolution of cell phones you know what I'm saying we saw the yeah. evolution of, 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 of all types of things even the hip-hop industry all types, right and so we understand from, a, from a, a cultural aspect what it takes to make change you know it'll take time obviously they will take hard work, obviously, but having that mindset of the pie is big enough. If we collaborate, we can get this money together and we can raise each other up instead of, you know, thinking about yourself all the time. You know, you turn around and and, and pick somebody up behind you. Teach them what you've learned. Why are you scared to share what you've learned, your experiences and your failures? Why are you afraid to share that? They're not going to tap into your pocket, and if they are tapping into your pocket, that means you're f-ing being lazy. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You're not. You're not out here hustling. You know what I'm saying? People are asking, "Oh, chef, why, why are you so busy during COVID? Don't you scared and all that?" Oh I man, COVID, no COVID. This is gonna be the same. Sh-t. I don't give a f- if there was a goddamn virus or goddamn fire out there. I saw water to a f- well. I don't get. That's a right. A f- I'm a goddamn hustler, b. You f-ing stupid. I'm from That's the right. South Bronx. You bugging out here, b. I'm getting mines. You better go get yours too, because if you're not, you. Around over here, unemployment is supposed to help you, not to sit on your ass and buy sneakers. Fuck out of here. you stupid. Use unemployment to create your brand. Go for out there and and, and pay for promotion on Instagram to talk about what you want to talk about. What you doing, man? You sit on your ass, buy a car. You know, create a company. Do some. You bugging. It. It only takes four hundred dollars to create a company. Four hundred dollars. You get a tax ID. You get a company. You get tax benefits. Out here, you stupid. And you know, also, at the end of the day, I think you know we just gotta we just gotta go through the motions. You know, do our part to make sure that you know the next generation got the tools to be successful. And and that's it, man. I I I can't control what other people gotta do with their lives, but all I gotta say is I gotta do my part to make sure I'm doing the right things and. And I'm giving back to the people that gave to me. And I'm giving back to my community.
0: And that's number one. Uh... That's great. I mean, especially, you know, uh, could you tell us a little bit more about how you started uh, to go back to the Filipino culture and finding yourself through food? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it, really just, it really
2: just came down to, um, to uh, during COVID, I just you didn't know what to do. You know, I, I was so lost. And I met a friend who, who's a Phil Also, is a Filipino American, and he, he did that journey for himself, but he he turned to the spiritual side. You know, mm-hmm. he got really close to his land. He got really close to the people in his tribe, and he wears it on his sleeve on his clothing. You know what I'm saying? He's like a tribal guy. That's dope. And and so I I I ended up you know researching all those things, and then I went to Vancouver for the TED conference. I got invited to. To speak about my work in the community. And I've met this professor who's a professor in in, in language for
0: the Filipino
2: language in, in Vancouver. And there's a language that's similar to Sanskrit that's been around in, in indigenous people in the Philippines for 600 years and is a lost language. The oh, only know 24 letters in the alphabet, and the alphabet is like 300, 300 letters. So you only know 24 words right now. And so, and so, uh, I ended up meeting this guy and his wife and, and, and then we started, you know, talking and, you know, they really revved me up to, to, you know, to look who I am and look myself in the mirror and, and realize that I am a Filipino, you know, you're not an American, you are a Filipino. And so that got me going. I got this, I got this tattoo here. It's in, uh, it's in my, it's in that language. It means, uh. Uh, don't forget your roots, or don't forget where you came from. Ah. And, so, and so they wrote that for me. The professor wrote that for me, and I got his tattoo. And so as a, as a daily reminder. Uh, whenever I'm, you know, doing any project or whatever I'm doing, I'm always saying to, to remind myself too: is never forget where you came from. Otherwise, you become an asshole. So it's it's always been it's always been part of my verbiage. And the Filipino culture and the Filipino food, so the whole food thing I'm doing now, is just part of my journey, and it's just part of me finding myself at 35 years old and knowing who I am at this point. Wow.
1: Um. So we've been going a while. Uh, and I know you're. You, I know you're really busy. There's a couple things. Just uh, uh, one was a segment that we just been trying to do. I know this is the second episode. Um, but it's, if you can think of anything you have up top, like an anecdote from your personal life where you're either tokenized or fetishized and why, and what's the difference?
2: Um, I mean, you know, uh, I probably have a few, um, a few instances that I've, you know, that I've gone through it and been tokenized and been fetishized, but I was so juiced up on on the on the juice. I was drinking the juice so much that I didn't even realize that that was happening around me. You know, you know, and 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 you know, thinking about it now. You know, I only spoke about it last week. I, it just really reminded me of the Mexicans, too, you know, that whole thing. You know what I'm saying? Like, white chefs love Mexican food. Like, they f***ing love Mexican food. Like, it's, it's like their thing, you know? They eat a f***ing taco, they lose their shit
0: They're the experts. You know?
2: Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I think I've seen a few of, the, of my Mexican brothers and sisters been, you know, fetishized or tokenized because of their Mexican food. And, and and some of it you know was heartfelt. I, you know I, some guys really loved it, but some of it was you know just straight abuse, you know what I'm saying so I think that's like one of the things I can you know I remember but yeah
1: okay, so I guess we just lost chef. Uh, we don't really need to finish that we got a lot we got a really big interview out of him um, and he told us a lot and there's a lot of things to unpack um, and so you know, Thank you. If you're still listening at this point, thank you. Please go to our website, returnthejewels.com um, We're going to have by the time this is out, we'll have YouTube and all that social media. So, you know, follow us at, at returnthejewels. Pretty simple. Buy the merch. It's pretty cool stuff. My name is Love Agarwal. I'm Baniari. And we're out. Thank you. <laughs>